Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. For this episode, we have Albert Lanier. Albert is a freelance journalist for 22 years, currently retired. He wrote for newspapers like Honolulu Weekly, Pacific Business News, and magazines such as Hawaii, Edible Hawaii Islands, uh, before he retired in 2017. He's currently writing a blog for Medium.com. He's been a commentator and pundit on podcasts and programs. You can reach him at Critic Inc., C-R-I-T-I-C-I-N-C, on Twitter and Facebook. Welcome to the podcast, Albert. Well, it's nice to be on the podcast with you, Josh. Well, I'm really, you. Glad, you're, I'm really glad you're here because we've been having some communications via Twitter, and it's really great to talk to another journalist who has similar concerns about journalism. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, you know, I was a print journalist for 22 years, and I the issue of censorship, Mm-hmm. is one that I don't think I've ever talked to in the decade that I've been interviewed on podcasts and radio shows. So, Interesting. Why do you suppose no one has asked you about that question? That, you know, I don't know. Well, I really guess. don't know. Yeah. Here's what I know about censorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an old joke by a comedian called Jakob Smirnoff. Yes. And the joke goes, because uh, he was Russian, mm-hmm. and he would say something along the line, I'm paraphrasing, but he would say something along the line of, you know, in America, you know, you can have a good time, and there's always, you can always find a party. In Russia, party always finds you. <laughs> okay. I would say as a journalist <laughs> that you don't find censorship. Mm. Censorship finds you. Okay. And I think as a journalist and as a reporter that when it comes to censorship in the media, in, in the news business, I think it will always find you. You will know it mm. when it appears, when it manifests itself, and when it impacts you. It will sort of get in your face. That is that is the case. And so we had been discussing the censorship around Planet of the Humans, the mm-hmm. environmental film from executive producer Michael Moore, director Jeff Gibbs, and producer Ozzy Zinner. And that was put out a little over a month ago on YouTube, racked up about 8.5 million views, had some controversies in terms of some folks in the environmental movement. Some aspects of it didn't like it. Other aspects loved it. Um, There was a fair amount of stories. There was an effort to censor it, and it actually worked. They took the film down for 12 days over a fair use claim, which has since been resolved, and the film is back up. But you wrote a piece on Medium, which I thought was really excellent, called Not Coming to a Theater Near You, the censorship campaign against Michael Moore and the film Planet of the Humans. So why did you write this piece? Well, for a couple of reasons. Now, let me do a little backstory here. Mm-hmm. I saw the film, and the film made a couple of criticisms that I had made over a decade ago. The criticisms were that wind and solar could not replace coal, oil, and I guess now natural gas, but at the time weren't talking about natural gas as much but that wind and solar could not replace uh, coal and oil as primary energy sources, and that you would basically need coal and oil and fossil fuels to back up. The second is that uh, corporate interests were involved in not only 
funding environmental groups, but promoting environmental agendas in a way. They're behind it. Um, I think at the years ago, I uh, had noted that they were promoting like NBC Universal Screen Week. Now, the film had made a, these sort of two major points. And I made the same points more than a decade ago when I was on podcasts and radio shows and we talk shows for the first time, uh, when I was being interviewed as an individual for the very first time, let alone as a journalist and as a writer. Mm-hmm. So when I saw the film make these points, I was a little surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised by the criticisms because I knew they were accurate, but I was surprised that a film that was about in- environmental movements and about environmentalism were making points about green energy and about corporate influence. And that impressed me a little bit. And so that got me to go back on shows and talk about um, green energy and corporate influence and environmental movement. And that's what I've been doing for the past couple of, uh, I, I guess, past few weeks. I've had a couple of shows come out. Uh, I think I was on a show called The Jelly Effect and another called The Parallax Views. Hmm. So I, that's what I was talking about. Now, as to why I wrote the piece, I actually wasn't going to talk about the film that much. I mean, the film to me was a springboard for talking about uh, not only my criticisms that I had met on um, other podcasts and talk shows, especially one called um, The Corporate Report, which people can look up themselves if they want. It's Interview 85. You can go look it up online. The reason why I had uh, written the piece uh, also, kind of, uh, I was on these shows also, just to go back, I was on these shows also, these talk shows and these podcasts, because of reporting I had done for a publication, an uh, alternative weekly called uh, Honolulu Weekly, uh, back in 1985, I, uh, I'm sorry, not in 1985, back in uh, 2008, I had written an article called Variable Wind Trade, which was... Um, sort of investigative reporting type piece about a firm called First Wind, which wanted to build a wind farm on the island of Molokai that was about, I think, anywhere from 100 to 140 turbines. Mm -hmm. And they had already built a 50 turbine farm in the town of Cohocton in upstate New York. And they were be, they were under investigation by the state of New York in regards to ethics. The attorney general's office at the time, which was then led by Andrew Cuomo, who's now governor of New York, was uh, conducting an ethics probe into wind power companies. And first one was one of, I think, a couple of, po- of companies that was initially uh, subpoenaed and initially investigated. And that was why I was on the talk shows and why I initially was on the podcast. Since mm-hmm. then, I've been doing other issues and subjects. Um, I'm, I'm really actually not an environmental and ecological and conservational writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not an environmentalist. I make no bones about that. And mm-hmm. I've stated this in subsequent interviews. Um, but I did cover this environmental-oriented type article because I thought it was a good story. Uh, meaning variable wind trade. In 2009, I also did a follow-up, which was called Blowing in the Wind. It was a kind of follow-up to wind power. 
This one was set on the island of uh, Lanai here in Hawaii about a company called Castle Cook that was looking to build a wind farm. And what happened was that the uh, I wasn't getting a response from that. Uh, and, and in my research that I had done in between variable wind trade and blowing in the wind, variable wind trade came out in 2008, uh, blowing in the wind came out in 2009, had led me to become kind of skeptical about wind power. Uh, I didn't really have a stake or a say in wind power anyway. I didn't have an opinion about it prior. But my research and my looking into it made me very, very skeptical of wind power. And so by the time I wrote the article, I was, I was a wind skeptic, so to speak. And uh, I felt there had to be more done besides this article. I felt writing articles wasn't going to get it accomplished. So that's when I turned to radio and I started going on shows. The first show I went on was a show called um, The News Anchor Show on a station called WLEA in New York. So I realized it's a roundabout way to get into why I eventually wrote the piece in Medium about the planet and the humans and Mm-hmm. The censorship campaign, so I apologize. No, no, that's good to know your background and know that you have written on the topics that are covered in the film. So I think that's very relevant. Right, and that's why I looked at the movie. And, and that's why the movie resonated with me, because they were making the criticisms I had made over a decade ago. And on talk shows and radio shows, the, the exception was that nobody paid attention to anything I said over a decade ago. Sure. Uh, no one seemed to care. And now you have a documentary where suddenly people are caring because of the pedigree behind it. You know, Jeff Gibbs, who is the writer-director, is someone who worked with Michael Moore as a researcher and writer. He's also a composer. Uh, and, of course, Michael Moore is known for his Oscar-winning documentary, Bowling for Columbine, and also other documentaries like Fahrenheit 9-11 and Roger and Me and other films. And, again... I apologize for my roundabout way of answering your question. No, that's but, great. Uh, no, that's I really appreciate that. So yeah. obviously there has been a lot of back and forth around the issues of wind power, whether it's as you know, effective as folks say, there are limitations, there are ecological harms, can there actually be enough of it to really replace fossil fuels? So all that kind of exists in a particular package, and that's fine to have those discussions and those back and forth, and that's controversial, and that, that's all great. So there's there's one aspect of that, right? So people can watch the film mm-hmm. and say, oh, I agree with that, or I'm not sure if I agree with that, or I definitely disagree with that. So the, all that, we all agree, is fine, right? People can yeah. have those discussions, have their point sure. of view. But then, that's not what happened with Planet of the Humans, right? No, it's not. Yeah. What happened with Planet of the Humans, as you are well aware, is that this film was released on Earth Day. And I saw it, I think, in late April, I think early May. And again, I started doing interviews on other shows, you know, bringing up what I had mentioned before, my past reporting for Honolulu Weekly, a couple articles that I wrote, uh, my reporting on wind power, and also what I had stated years ago, which was that wind and solar could replace coal fire plants and oil, and that fossil fuel would likely have to be a backup, and that corporate influence on the environmental movement and their promoting of a corporate agenda at times, certain corporations, was something you had to be concerned about. And I, I, I was, you know, I said this in a couple of interviews that I've done more recently. And what's happened with this film is it got yanked from YouTube 
because of a copyright claim, I believe by a supposed environmental photographer, Bobby Smith. Mm-hmm. And the thing about this film has been that it, the reason I wrote the piece was not only the yanking of the film from YouTube, which I sort of expected, I knew there was going to be a backlash against the film, but also what you had said about not being able to get any pieces out mm-hmm. in outlets that would provide another look at this film. Yep. And I was also looking at what Josh Fox was doing, writing a piece for, I believe it was The Nation. So who is Josh Fox? Do you want to just explain that right. a little bit? Josh Fox is an environmental environmentalist. He's also an environmental documentary filmmaker. He did a documentary called Gasland. And uh, he's been in, you know, he's been seen on a number of um, sort of high-profile outlets. Uh, MSNBC, uh, I think he was on a show called All In, Chris Hayes. He's been a guest on that. And he's been a guest on other shows like um, The Rising Show that's online from The Hill. Um, I believe it's Crystal Ball and, and Sagar and Jetty. So he's been on that show. But specifically, Josh Fox has been at the forefront of a campaign in trying to not only, I would say, censor the film, but basically remove it. Mm-hmm. He called for the film to be retracted very early on, which is an odd word to use against the documentary film. Mm-hmm. A documentary film is not a essay. It is not a article. It's not an investigative piece. You cannot retract a documentary film. Hmm. And but that was what he was calling very early on for. Right. Now, a uh, guy who was like a video movie maker, he's also a writer called Matt Orfalea, came out with a piece in Medium, which is where my blog is, and he wrote that Josh was sending emails to various websites that had content about Planet of the Humans, urging them to take it off. And at one point, he called the film, quote, an abomination. So this is the kind of force that you have against, you have a documentary filmmaker that's trying to get a documentary removed from the market. Yes. Because Planet of the Humans was on YouTube, as you had noted earlier in your introduction, Planet of the Humans was on YouTube, and it was provided on Michael Moore's YouTube channel for free. If this film had been in theaters, with the kind of downloads it received, about $8.3 million before it was removed, this film would be a huge box office hit. I mean, Michael Moore on his podcast, Rumble, was saying that if this film were in theaters, with that kind of number of representation, 8.3 million people, It'd probably make a hundred million dollars at the box office. It'd be one of the highest grossing documentaries. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's probably the documentary of the year thus far. And what has been what can only be described as one of the most tumultuous year years in years. Yes. Um this film would be a huge hit. So Josh Fox, the documentary filmmaker and journalist, a documentary filmmaker is trying to get a documentary removed. You had a, uh, I think it was an assistant political science professor, I think I quote her in my article, mm-hmm. as stating that it would be nice for the film to be buried. Yep. I mean, this is the attitude to the people who are aligned against Planet of the Humans. I mean, we're not talking about people who simply want this film 
criticized and, and harshly critiqued. In fact, there's been wave after wave after wave of harsh critique from the film. You go to YouTube, you see lots of videos debunking the film and saying what's wrong with it. And hardly any videos saying what's right with it or praising it or having anything positive to say about it. The campaign against this film has been absolutely striking. I mean, it's been a relentless and ruthless campaign. But I just mean, to jump in there, I've been right. following pretty much all of the response to it online, so on YouTube, and actually your average person, so who isn't a mainstream environmentalist or in the media, is saying lots of positive things about the film. You scroll down the comments, they're like 90% positive, so the people, and certainly lots of environmentalists as well, and then frankly anyone who just comes at it without a, you know, an ideology has said a lot of positive things about it, but that's not what you're hearing much in the media anymore. And you know, my, my personal experience was basically, you know, as a award-winning environmental journalist, I only say that just to say that I have a bit of a track record writing on these exact topics. None of these outlets would let me print anything. Uh, Michael Moore himself has been shot down from publishing an op-ed response on places like The Guardian, Common Dreams, all places that have run negative commentary. So it's, it's, I just want to make it clear, there are probably the majority of folks out there, if you talk to people and individuals, think that the film either has a lot of good stuff or is, is really great. But what we're hearing is disproportionately the other side, and it's because of the gatekeepers. And this is why I wrote the piece. I wrote the piece because... You're not hearing the other side in regards to Planet of the Humans. And I found this campaign, even by standards of censorship, I found this campaign just utterly devoid of substance and utterly devoid of any decency. Uh, there's a lot of nastiness going on. There's a lot of viciousness going on against Michael Moore. I don't mind that people criticize more. I, I like Mike, but I don't mind that people criticize more. He's used to being criticized. Oh, of course. But what they've said about Mike in regards to this film, and he produced it. He did not direct or write this film. Right. He just produced it. But what they've said about Michael Moore in regards to this movie, it's just outright slander. And it shouldn't be allowed to go unanswered. And the fact that he has not been allowed to write pieces for The Guardian or, or any other outlet or even Newsweek, uh, in my article, um, in my piece, uh, Not Coming to a Theater Near You, mm. I know Michael Mann, who is an atmospheric scientist with uh, Penn State University, had written an op-ed piece, an opinion piece for Newsweek, where he took some cheap shots at Michael Moore. Um, I mean, he raised, I think, some, some criticisms which are worth at least engaging in, mm -hmm. but he took cheap shots of Michael Moore. Now, here's the strange thing about Michael Mann, who I had not known before I found out about his piece. When I was on Twitter, I saw his name, and so I looked him up. He had already blocked me. <laughs> I hadn't tweeted anything to him. <laughs> I didn't know the guy, but he had already blocked me. Hmm. I was taken aback. I mean, he may have been included in maybe some tweet I had to someone about the film, but mm -hmm. I, I mean, I was I was really just a little taken aback. 
And I realized the extent of this campaign. And that, I mean, I, I wrote the article based upon what I saw was happening with the film, what Josh Fox was doing, mm-hmm. and what you had noted about not being able to get pieces in. It didn't surprise me in the overall tenor of censorship, mm-hmm. but I felt it was just, it was just wrong. And I, I, I didn't want to, the strange thing was, I didn't want to talk about this movie. I was talking about it a little in my interviews recently because it had kind of spurred me on to talk about wind power and green energy, renewable energy, and some of the criticisms I had made over a decade ago that were in this Planet of the Humans documentary. Yep. But I didn't want to talk about the film itself. And now I find myself talking about the film itself because I've already done the other interviews. Well, it's like there's the film itself and the issues in it. Then there's the response to it and the critique of it. And that's what my piece was about. My piece was basically responding to critiquing the critique because I found that quite, you know, if not as interesting, uh, almost as interesting as the film itself and then all the censorship stuff. So it's taken on a life of its own beyond even just the issues in the film. Yeah, I think so. If you need a poster child for free speech, Planet of the Humans is it. This is one of the biggest assaults on free speech I have seen in years. In years. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of it does come from, I guess you'd say, folks on the left. And I basically consider mm-hmm. myself that. I've always been a part of environmental causes and social justice right. causes. Most right. of the censorship censorship you see is, okay, it's maybe around touchy issues that might impact groups of people and, you know, identity politics. So I get it. People are a bit touchy, but that's not what this film is about at all. And that to me is what's very outstanding. The the film was just saying, well, here are some concerns about basically the environmental movement and energy sources and got the same response as if it was some sort of thing criticizing groups of people. Well, the reality is that, as I mentioned before, I'm I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not yeah. an ecologist, so I yeah. don't have skin in the game. Right. Um, I can look at it with fresh eyes, and I can look at it as a blank slate. But Michael Moore and Jeff Gibbs and, and even Ozzy Zellner, who was a producer on the film, these are environmentalists. These are people involved with environmentalism. Right. If they're willing to go and say, you know, wind energy solar panels, they're not going to be effective as a alternative to fossil fuel portfolio of coal fire plants and oil and even natural gas. If they're willing to be critical of especially the corporate backed environmental movement. I think that's what rubs people some on the left. Mm. And I think that's what one of the reasons they were sensitive to it. Yeah. I saw it years ago. I saw it over a decade ago. These are points that I made over 10 years ago. And no one listened, to be brutally honest. I don't know mm-hmm. that I expected anyone to go out and protest on the streets sure. in the same way that we're seeing now in regards to George Floyd right. and other issues. I didn't expect people to go out in the streets and protest, but um, I, I had made these points over a decade ago, and this film now makes it a decade later. And that's part of the reason I'm supporting the film, because the film supports the criticisms that I made. It backs them up. And so I feel like I have to defend this film. I can't allow those who would tear down and destroy this movie. Mm-hmm. To I can't allow that. 
Yeah. And in the other podcasts, I've definitely addressed some of the specific criticisms. I'm not going to get into that in this case, but right. but let's just say that people have a right to disagree about some of the things. I don't agree with everything in the film, uh, that kind of stuff, but it's really shifted beyond that. It's I don't yeah. agree with parts of it, and that's what's funny because a lot of the folks who disagree with, who, who'd want the film taken down, if you ask them, they actually agree with a lot of the messaging around climate change, around all sorts of issues. Nearly all of them agree that biomass energy is a concern. That was my component of it, which is funny because folks definitely gave me a, a hard time when I was speaking out about it before. So they all kind of agree on so many of the things, but instead they focus on a few of them. And again, fine, if that's how they want to do it, they want to distort it in that way with their criticisms, but they didn't leave it at that. They let it to, they got to the point where we need to make it so no one can even see this. And I guess the question I have yeah. for you is, so taking it from the environmentalists, um, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of folks are ideological or they get threatened or whatever, and that's kind of the new thing. You, you can cancel by, in this case, it was basically going to Big Brother Tech Company and having a fair use claim, even though fair use, you can have up to 30 seconds. So it wasn't even, you see any Michael Moore film, you know, when it has snippets from newscasts, that's all fair use stuff. That's how right. it, how it works. But they knew instead of uh, they didn't go to Jeff Gibbs and say, "Hey, I don't want my stuff associated with this." The filmmaker or the uh, photographer admitted he was against the film, and that's why he did this. And so it worked for a little bit. So let's just say those folks are in one category. We can understand they're threatened by this. They don't want people to see it. That's a bit authoritarian. But that's kind of what uh, where a lot of folks are. But now let's get a little bit into the journalism around this. And uh, just to preface it, I just want to read a Facebook post. I'm not going to name any names here, but this is yeah. a uh, an, an influential environmental journalist, and he is very closely associated with a prominent journalism society. And he's basically, um, in many ways, he's he, he's even related to people and that he, he's very much a part of it and he didn't write a piece on it so i want to be clear about that but i was asking him and other folks in this group if they had any concerns about what i believe to be censorship around journalists like me and even michael moore writing pieces about this and he was basically saying um that eh, you know it's it's probably because the film is very flawed he, he specifically said it could be very flawed and then i, I something just seemed off so i asked him and i screenshotted this with taking his name out and I put it on Twitter. Have have you seen the film? Um, have you read the critiques to match it up with actually what's in the film? So he's stating he's not concerned about the censorship. It's because it's probably a garbage film. And then in the response, he's like, no, I have not wanted to expend my energy there and have not needed to. So there you have it. A journalist, and this is just kind of, I think, indicative of the way of thinking amongst a lot of journalists. To say, you know what, I don't even need to know. I already know what's what, and the censorship is probably legit. So I was taken aback by that. So I'm just curious, what do you think about that exact statement that was made by this journalist? I'm not surprised by it. Mm. You know, I think when you talk about vested interests, that's a phrase that would seem to fit the critics and the people behind the campaign to censor this movie. Mm. They have a vested interest. They have a vested interest in corporate entities and corporations continuing to fund their environmental groups and organizations and helping spread awareness 
of certain elements of of their environmental uh, promulgation, mm-hmm. whether it's wind, whether it's solar, uh, whether it's biomass, biofuels. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a vested interest. They have a vested interest in promoting the fiction that somehow technology is what will help the environment, mm-hmm. that somehow the environment will be made better by building lots of wind turbines, will be made better by solar panels, that it will be made better by these forms, by biomass, like cutting down trees and burning them up to provide energy. And what's ironic, of course, is that you these are people who say they are going to sustain the environment, but of course, what they... What they are not noting is their impact on the environment. When you deal with wind turbines, you have to deal with the wildlife and the animals that are killed, birds and bats. When you deal with solar arrays, you have to deal with the animals that are displaced. In California, I think with one facility, you had desert tortoises that were removed from their habitat. So you can talk about what you are doing with these devices these solar panels, these wind turbines, that you say are beneficial for the environment. But nothing comes without a price. Mm-hmm. And this is something I think that Jeff Gibbs, the director, had noted in the docu- um, in a uh, Michael Moore's podcast, Rumble, recently, is that any kind of development technologically has come with a price. It has come with an impact. The earth has never been the same. I can't believe that I'm going to say this publicly, but I'm going to say it publicly. The Industrial Revolution was one of the worst things for this planet. There I said it. (laughs) (laughs) But it's one of the worst things for this planet. Now, it's happened. It's out of the way. There's nothing I can do about it. But I think the Industrial Revolution has ushered in, and the technology since, has ushered in the problems that we have on this planet in regards to environment, in regards to climate. You know, we, you, cannot, you cannot say that technology will save us, and this is the problem with green, so-called green energy or renewable energy. It's technology-dependent. And so... You know, I, I remember getting into a back and forth on some video with people, and, and I was talking about, you know, their, their idea was, oh, well, you know, progress is what's important. And, and you know, we progress is what will help us. And human beings have been better off now because of capitalism and, and because of uh, technology and, and the, what's, what's happened since industrialization and so forth and development, industrial development. And my point is, I don't think so. Mm. Uh, you can say that people are living longer, but it comes at a price. Mm-hmm. You can't be for the environment and yet be for technology that will impact the environment. I mean, sure. that makes no sense to me. <laughs> and that's a lot of the critique uh, that was in the film, and I think that's a fair debate to have. So why would you think that an editor, say, at publication like Common Dreams or The Guardian that has run 
some commentary, some some pretty unhinged commentary as well, would feel justified, you know, as a journalist, so as an editor or journalist, or at least former journalist or part of yeah. the media entity, saying, you know what, we're not going to give him a say or anyone else. Like, what do you think is going through their heads? Well, we get to the larger issue of of the journalism profession and of we'll just say censorship. Okay. As I mentioned before, as a journalist, you don't find censorship. Censorship finds you. Mm-hmm. And what's often talked about in regards to the journalism profession is the notion of self-censorship. Mm-hmm. That internally, publications, newspapers, magazines, websites now, uh, maybe even some bigger blogs, what they would do is they have an internal structure that allows for them to sort of filter ideas, to sort of bring in a little of what Noam Chomsky had noted in his pioneering book with, uh, I think it was uh, Edward Herman, Manufacturing Consent. Hmm. What he talked about, I think, in that book was filters and how the media has a number of filters. Hmm. And that it's a matter of, for what, what Chomsky noted was it's a matter, it's, it, at one point it's very easy because you have individuals within these organizations, the Guardian and Common Dreams or what have you, that have the ability to filter, that have the ability to sift. It's, so the idea of self-censorship, or what I like to call the editors and publishers and management serving as a kind of censorship board. And so when you as a freelancer, as I was for many years, mm-hmm. pitch ideas, or you as a staff writer pitch ideas or have ideas about it, they then have to take those ideas and essentially sit through them to determine whether they are acceptable to the higher-ups. They are acceptable to the owners and the operators of said corporation. And beyond that, are they acceptable in regards to the larger society, the larger public? Or really what they, what they, what their perception of the larger public is. You know, I was, um, and I'll use some other examples to talk about censorship that have nothing to do with environmentalism. Okay. Take, for example, someone like uh, Gary Webb, who later wrote a book called Dark Alliance, which was about the crack cocaine epidemic. It was based on a series he had written for the San Jose Mercury News. And the series looked at the crack crack cocaine epidemic in Los Angeles in the 80s and how it was tied to... uh, individuals who were raising money for the Contra fighters in the country of Nicaragua, which was then under uh, control of the, what would be, I guess, the socialist, um, generally, Sandinista movement. Now, what Gary Webb had noted was that his initial series came out about Dark Alliance. And what happened later on is that he went back to um, some other countries in South America to do research and do interviews. And 
he had written, I think, some more articles, which was supposed to be follow-ups in regards to the series. But the editors didn't allow for that because, as I had mentioned with this documentary, Planet of the Humans, the San Jose Mercury News was getting wave after wave after wave of criticisms from the major media, from the larger newspapers. Um, and so there was also resentment because, for example, the San Jose Mercury News, which is in basically Silicon Valley, Northern California, had written a story that essentially scooped the Los Angeles Times, which is in Southern California. In fact, uh, one of the character, one of the, I hate to use the term character, but one of the individuals involved in this story, Freeway Ricky Ross, was actually the subject of a profile that was done by a reporter in the LA Times earlier. So what you had was resentment from a major newspaper like the LA Times. They then compiled a, quote, Get Gary Webb team. I think that was what it was nicknamed, of a number of reporters at the LA Times to respond to the San Jose Mercury News series, Dark Alliance. Hmm. And what happened subsequent to this were articles coming out in the Los Angeles Times. <clears throat> so articles that had come out in the Los Angeles Times, in the New York Times, and, <clears throat> excuse me. So the major papers, like the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, um, and, and other publications, had come out with articles that were, the Washington Post, were coming out with articles that were basically um, attacking dark, the Dark Alliance series and saying it's unfounded, it's unwarranted, it's not substantive, uh, and spreading the outright lie that the CIA was said to have been involved in cocaine trafficking and cocaine and drug running, when in fact the CIA denied it. I actually looked into what happened to Gary Webb in another blog article I did, which was entitled, uh, I believe it was called Terminated with Extreme Prejudice. Uh, and if people want to look that up as well, if they have the time, they can. But I looked into that for my kind of second anniversary blog article, second year anniversary. I write a blog article every year in terms of my anniversary hmm. uh, for an anniversary article. And that was the one that I looked into. But that's what happened, is that hmm. the major media, the mainstream media, reacted with this sort of savagery and suddenness to Gary Webb and, and the series. And eventually, the Saturday Mercury News had to make a retraction. Wow. They had to retract the article. And uh, Gary Webb eventually got, um, I believe he was transferred to another bureau of the newspaper outside Sacramento, uh, <laughs> capital. And he eventually resigned from the, uh, from the Mercury News. Okay. So in many respects, his career was destroyed. But the reason I bring that up is to see the kind of pattern of work in regards to censorship. Yes. In this case, it wasn't so much censorship within the San Jose Mercury News, which, you know, printed his series, and for which it was extensively sourced, and there weren't any, uh, well, there wasn't anything untrue. Mm -hmm. it, was not, it was completely factual. 
But what Webb wasn't allowed, let's look at the factors here. A couple of points. One, Webb was not allowed to do a follow-up because the editors were being criticized, and so he wasn't able to respond. Now, let's look at what's happened in regards to this documentary, Planet of the Humans. Mm -hmm. Michael Moore has not been able to have a written response to write pieces in response in outlets like The Guardian and Common Dreams and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Probably even Newsweek. Yep. Uh, Two critical articles and critical pieces about him. So that's one facet of what I would say the larger overall, let's just say external censorship here, Mm -hmm. which is what I see going on with Planet of the Humans. It's not internal, it's external. So the first factor, not allowing follow-up or other pieces to be written. So in Gary Webb's case, the follow-up articles weren't allowed because of the criticism. In the case of Michael Moore, he wasn't allowed to write pieces responding to the criticism. Second factor is the overall attack, the wave of negative attacks on, in this case, the series Dark Alliance, the three-part series in the Mercury News, and then we contrasted to Planet of the Humans. There was the wave after wave of attack. Hardly, in the case of uh, the San Jose Mercury News' uh, Dark Alliance, there was some positive feedback. There were positive aspects that were noted by people. Again, another aspect. People reacted to it and were angered and outraged. And there were positive reactions to the article initially, and then you saw the wave after wave of negativity. Kind of like with Planet of the Humans, what you saw is a lot of positivity, as you mentioned, from people who had seen the film, and uh, not just environmental movement, but also outside, just layman people who weren't involved. Right. And you also see, again, the pattern, wave after wave of attack. It happened with the Dark Alliance article, and it happens conversely and in contrast to Planet of the Humans. You go to YouTube, negative video after negative video after negative video. You look at the pieces, negative piece after negative piece after negative piece in great publications. So that's, so you look at those two factors. Mm-hmm. And so those are the, when you, when you, when you use, using the Dark Alliance series as a model, yeah. and what happened to it, we can see that those two factors are at work in terms of external censorship. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So thanks for that history because it's showing that's what's going on with Planet of the Humans and probably other issues today. It's nothing new. Right. It's just a different form of the same, the same right. old, same old. So I guess to conclude things, what can be done to save journalism? <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but... Well, it's kind of funny. It is funny. You know, it's funny. I was on a show... I seem to be asked that these days, which is interesting for me. Hmm. Um, you know, I make no bones about who I am. I was just a local regional freelance journalist. I was never a journalistic star. You know, I was never um, a guy who was writing for major national publications. I was mostly local and regional in California and Washington State and mostly in Hawaii. 
Um, but when I've been on podcasts and radio shows, sometimes I've been asked questions like this. And the business has changed. It's changed a great deal. And we're, we're seeing right now with uh, the current administration is a sort of war on media. And we see it in the protests that are going on uh, in regards to uh, the death of George Floyd. We're seeing journalists getting attacked in these protests. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a bit of a war, I would say, on media. And getting back to what we can do about journalism, I think, first and foremost, we have to protect journalism. Mm -hmm. I hate to say that, but it, I think we have to protect it. Okay. Uh, there are structural, financial, and uh, business changes that are that are eroding at local newspapers, that are eroding at other kinds of outlets that are forcing to consolidation. You see it in the local TV uh, news market with Sinclair gobbling up a lot of local TV stations. Hmm. Um and, and so what you're seeing is the news being used as a handmaiden to corporations in a way that even you didn't see decades ago. Most recently, there was a coordinated sort of what we would call in print journalism, of course, advertorial by Amazon. Right. That was, that was being stated in the exact same way on numerous TV stations. And... I think, first of all, we have to look at, we have to protect journalism, and we have to protect the integrity of journalism. Hmm. And I think, first and foremost, when it comes to journalism, we, we have to be able to get back to the ability. In television, it was equal time. The FCC, they used to have equal time provisions. Yes. I think we need to return to something along that line. Mm -hmm. Because what we're seeing with Planet of the Humans and what we're seeing now is a lack of equal time. Michael Moore wasn't allowed to make his case in regards to responding to criticism. That's just plain wrong. And part of the reason that I wrote the article, Not Coming to a Theater Near You, is I felt there needed to be equal time. I felt there needed to be some record, some pushback against the efforts to censor this film. Thank goodness this film is now back on YouTube. Yes. I'm very glad that that's happened. Mm -hmm. But I wrote it because I felt there needed to be pushback. Um, and I think there needed to be a way to fight against what I would call external censorship of this film and of journalists like you. Mm -hmm. I mean, you should be able to write a piece somewhere that should have a fair defense of the film or parts therein. And the fact that you're not able to do that is endemic of the profession. It's also endemic of what has gone on in the profession. Um, I think what we need to do is we need to, I think most of you, most especially, we need to be vigilant against this kind of external censorship. Not just internal censorship, which is hard enough to fight, but external censorship. When something openly is is um, removed because some photographer or some person who hates this film objects to four seconds of their work being used. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous nonsense like that. We have to fight against external censorship. That's very important. The internal censorship, self-censorship, 
Right. Yes, if we can, but it's very hard because that's institutional. Mm. That's bureaucratic. But I think we have to preserve the integrity of this profession. Mm-hmm. I think the last thing I would want to say is that the major media and and especially also the major, um, what would I say, online media, you know, they haven't really covered this the way they should. Yeah. I'm talking Young Turks, I'm talking Jimmy Dore, I'm talking David Pacman, I'm talking Majority Report. I'm talking about those shows as well. I think we also need the help of people online media. We need them to help look at this. To their credit, I think the Hill did do a, a segment on the the, 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 the pushback against um, against this uh, movie. Yes. To the to credit of, to their credit, I give them credit for doing that. Yes. Um, but the other on but these other YouTube and online outlets, they haven't done that, and they needed to do that. And so, uh, I would call on them to even now talk about this movie and to talk about censorship, this kind of censorship. I think that's important. I think what you've gone through and what I've seen this film gone through needs to be talked about, especially what you've gone through and not being able to have pieces uh, about this film out there on outlets and in even websites. Mm-hmm. I think that's a story that needs to be told. And so, this external censorship and most importantly, having some of this media online talk about this. I mean, I understand the major media doesn't want to deal with this, mm-hmm. but we need them to talk about it. We need the YouTube media, the YouTube shows. We need online media to talk about it. Because if they don't talk about it, it may not get discussed. It may not see the light of day. Well, thank you so much, Albert, for coming on the show. Really appreciated everything you had to say and taking the time. And thanks again for your past work in the journalism field. We all agree journalism is really important, and I think it's important to, like you say, try to protect it, preserve the integrity, and move forward as best we can. And so folks who want to get a hold of Albert Lanier, you can reach him at on Twitter at Critic Inc., so that's C-R-I-T-I-C-I-N-C on Twitter and Facebook. So thanks again, Albert. Thank you.